thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the Band Biographies podcast, part of the Pantheon podcast network of excellent music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Austin Morgan, and I'm here with an interview episode for you this month with Christopher Swinney from the band Fire Sale. A Fire Sale is a bit of a supergroup as Chris has been in the Ataris, Brazil and Underminded, amongst many other bands that we discuss in the interview. Matt Riddle, the bassist, is from Face to Face, No Use for a Name and Pulley. Pedro Aida, also on guitar and vocals, is from Anne Beretta and Shot Clock. And Matt Morris on drums is from Darlington and 44 Gorgeous Blocks. Fire Sale has released a few EPs over the last two years, since they started recording together during the pandemic. And today, on the 9th of June 2023, they've released the video for the most recent single called A Fool's Errand, which you can watch wherever you watch your videos, especially at their record label, Negative Progression Records YouTube channel. There's a link to it in the show notes. You can follow Fire Sale on Facebook and Instagram at Fire Sale is a Band, and you can also follow Negative Progression Records on Instagram and Facebook at Negative Progression or find them negativeprogressionrecords.bandcamp.com. But without further ado, here's my conversation with guitarist of Fire Sale, Christopher Swinney. Um, I don't put it out as video yet. I've got ideas. Basically, this is me starting again. I've taken like four months off because um, yeah. I I was on tour back in November. And my day job is freelancing, podcast editing and journalism. So uh, I had to put everything else aside, you know. I'm coming off of a two month hiatus. I just got a little bit burnt out. I was up to almost 200 episodes and I just... Fire sales started doing stuff and I just needed to, something had to go for a while and it was the podcast. So. Yeah. Well, it's the thing that makes you the least money and is the most yeah. time consuming. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so what's the name of your podcast? That one time on tour. That one time on tour. That's the one. But it's one of those things, isn't it? Unfortunately, like I love doing the podcast and I love talking to various musicians and, and DJs and label owners and stuff, but there is a, a hefty time price yeah. that comes with it, isn't it? Well, like you said, you edit people's stuff like I was doing my own and then I was also editing other people's and I'm mixing and mastering for bands. And I just I also own a business. And it was like when fire sales started kicking off really hard, I was like, man, something has to kind of go on the back burner. And it became the podcast, but I'm coming back now. So excellent. Good stuff. We're both on our way back. <laughs> yeah, we're both on our way back. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Christopher Swinney, thank you so much for coming on the show. First off, I'd like to thank you for giving up your time to talk to me today. Thank you for giving up your time to talk to me today. 
And secondly, I'd like to thank Mike Cubillo from uh, Earshot Management as well for arranging this chat. He's becoming the guy that I go to at the moment. He's uh, he's sorting a lot of things out for me. It's it's weird for me because I, I get a lot of interviews for my show from him, but then he also does publicity for my band. So like <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing with him like 24-7. you got to change your hats every time. Yeah, you get yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so before we get into the kind of nitty gritty of fire sale and what's going on with uh, with that band and your career, um, I always like to kind of ask a few getting to know you questions. Yeah. Uh, just because we've never talked before. And uh, also, I'm sure the audience wants to know a little bit about you as well. I always like to start off with hopefully the one that undercuts any kind of street cred that you've got, any kind of punk credibility, and uh, ask you what the first single or album you bought with your own money was. Uh, with my own money? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Th- I don't know if this gives me much cred in the punk world, but the first record that I ever got for myself that my parents didn't have anything to do with, it wasn't even with money, really. It, in the United States, I don't know if they have it over there, but they had this thing called Columbia House where you could send this little card back and you could get 10 free CDs and then you had to like buy one CD, but you could cancel before that one came. So you could just get 10 free CDs for nothing or for like a penny. Wow. And the first, the first thing that I signed up for and got was and justice for all from Metallica. Okay. That's a pretty cool starting point because I, my, my uncle, when I was about eight or nine years old for my birthday, I think he just forgot it was my birthday and he was coming to the house. So he just grabbed whatever was in his car. He gave me master of puppets on cassette and I had never heard anything like that. I mean, I was like eight years old. I was listening to Sesame street and shit. Like I didn't, I didn't know what it was and I loved it. And I thought it was my own little secret. And then I got that thing in the mail where I could get free CDs as long as I like signed up for this club and then you could cancel and, and justice for all had just come out. I was like, Oh, that's the same logo. That's that band. I like, I knew nothing about it, knew nothing about the band, but that is the first record I got where my parents had nothing to do with it. Uh, cool. Well, you know, I can't, there's nothing really to roast you about on that one. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. And then I remember when the Black Album came out, my dad took me to the Midnight Madness sale at the record store because they released it, you know, at midnight the day before it came out. Mm. And there was like 9 million people in line to get it. And so Metallica has been a big deal for me. And I mean, they have a little bit of punk cred when you listen to the old yeah. stuff and they cover punk bands. So, I mean, I guess that's a little bit of punk cred. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, have you listened to 72 Seasons yet? The new, uh, the new. I'm one? staring at the vinyl right now. I've got this now playing thing in my studio and it's behind my computer mm. and 72 Seasons is sitting there. I, I got one of the, uh, one of the colored variants, like the yellow smoke and dude, I mean, here's what I think about that. I'm a fan from way back. I love everything they've ever done. Sans, maybe Lulu and Saint Anger. I'm not really into that stuff as much. Sure. But the new record, they're 60-year-old dudes. They're all worth multi-hundred million dollars. I think it's a pretty good effort for, for what they are and what they've become. And I dig it. Like, Too Far Gone, that song. I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah, that's yeah. A punk, that's a punk rock song, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they're doing stuff on this record they've never done before. And People don't dig it, but a lot of people do dig it. And I'm one of those people. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge Metallica fan. Like I'm, I'm more of a kind of hits guy, I guess. Yeah, that's Um, okay. Yeah. But I didn't really listen to much of their kind of nineties and early two thousand stuff. I heard this in anger 
record and thought, well, this isn't Metallica at all. No, I'm glad that record happened because it helped them through a bad time, but I don't listen to that record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought, well, if that's the way they've gone in the in the preceding time, I'm not going to, you know. And listening yeah. to 72 Seasons when it came out a couple of weeks back, I just thought, well, actually, this sounds really like their early stuff. It sounds like they've gone back and kind of they're doing much more interesting things now. I mean, for me as a guitar player, I mean, when there's guitar harmonies on the record, I don't care what else is happening. That's that because that's what they did back in the day, like the Iron mm. Maiden thing, you know, and, and they're doing that again. I, I will say I'm a fan of their long songs and these songs are massively long. <laughs> they are. And so like, I mean, when you buy the vinyl, there's four records or whatever. I mean, it's four, two records. No, maybe there's four records, three records. I don't know. There's a lot of. There's a lot of music on this record. That's all I'm yeah, going to yeah. say. But yeah, I, I dig it. I love the old stuff. The 90s stuff like Load and Reload, I was really into grunge. So mm -hmm. I really love that slower Metallica stuff too because one of my other favorite bands back in the day was Alice in Chains and I thought mm -hmm. it kind of had that vibe. So yeah. And Lulu is the one they did with Lou Reed and that's almost unlistenable. That was weird. I remember the, the, there's a TV program over here called um, Later with Jules Holland. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they played with him. They played about three songs on that show when they bought that album out, and I had no idea what was going on. None of it made any sense. <laughs> when you listen to that record and you take out Lou Reed, it's actually like if James was singing the whole time, it might be cool. Like some mm. of the riffs are cool. I just, it's an art thing. I can't get behind it. I mean, I like it. I think it's cool that they try different things. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm as adventuresome in my songwriting as they are, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Certainly... I just write a bunch of, I just write like punk stuff with a little bit of metal stuff here and there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, there's always that argument about whether artists and bands should keep to their formula or whether they should expand. And I think like you say, it's, it's noble to try. And sometimes you swing and you hit and sometimes you swing and you strike out. Right. <laughs> well, and that's, that's like the age old argument, you know, mm -hmm. like, like Slayer, they always sound like Slayer, but that mm -hmm. kind of gets boring after a while. A band that I really, really love, and I got to play a lot of shows with when I was playing in my old band, the Ataris, on Warp Tour and whatnot, is a band called Thrice. I don't know if yeah. you listen to Thrice or not. Yeah, yeah. Every time Thrice puts out a new record, it's like a new band. Mm. And a lot of people maybe don't like that. I love it because I mm. know every time they put something out, it's going to be something new and something fresh and different. And like I said, I've not really gone down that path. Most of the stuff I write sounds like the stuff I write, but I, I respect it when bands are like, we're artists and we're going to go out there and we're going to do the best record we can do at the time. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to, we're not going to try to serve the fans. Cause that would be like fake, you know? Yeah. I think some bands get stuck in that kind of like, well, people like this sound. So we're just going to do that sound. Yeah. And then there are other bands, like one of my other favorite bands is the Dropkick Murphys. Oh, yeah. And they've got a very specific thing. Like, you can't move too far out of that zone. You yeah, you kind of pigeonhole yourself. If you're flogging Molly or the Real McKenzie's or or Dropkick Murphys, and, you know, you put out all those records, then you come out with, like, I don't know, an emo song or something. It's not <laughs> it's... really going to – it's not going to work. An yeah, emo yeah. song with bagpipes. <laughs> Although Corn managed it, so Corn did, yeah. Let's let's, yeah. There you go. You you brought up there that you kind of write in one particular style, 
but like the bands that you've been in are do do run a gamut from the kind of the metalier side to the more pop punk side. I mean, the first kind of major ish band I suppose you were in was um the Widow Jenkins, right? Yeah, I there was a band that I was in from high school on, like my first band called Chronic Chaos, and we were kind of just like this, almost like a Wilhelm scream light. Because we were like kind of poppy, punky, but I there were riffs and some harmonies and like a little bit of metal edge. That band, when it ended, and we, you know, we put out a couple records and toured and did everything. We just never got to that next level. The next band I started with my buddy Joel, who used to be in the band Emery. They're, they were like a Christian hardcore band. We started this band called The Widow Jenkins, and we had a lot of label interests from like Victory and different like pretty big players in the in the underground scene. And it just never materialized because our our singer was kind of he loved writing songs, but he didn't really like going out and playing gigs. And that that was kind of I love that band. And it was on the heavier side. It was pretty much we don't say metalcore because that's what was big at the time because we were real thrashy. We didn't have any breakdowns. It was just it was almost kind of like new wave of British heavy metal back in the 80s, but mixed with more modern kind of hardcore stuff. Right. And I love that band and we had a lot of success with that band and toured and, and put some stuff out. But literally I went from that band into the Ataris mm. and that was amazing because all the people, when we joined that band, three members of the widow Jenkins were absorbed into the Ataris. Oh, uh, is that right? Yeah. And our drummer, my bass player, Brian, and then me. And so it was Chris Rowe and then three dudes from a metal band. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, you know, I've got a shaved head and I've covered in tattoos and I don't think I look like a metal guy, but I maybe don't look like a pop punk guy. Mm. And so like when that happened and it was announced everywhere, people were like, why is this metal band now the Ataris? Like it was a really weird thing. But dude, like when you were just saying that, that the bands run the gamut from like pop punk all the way to like metal, that's me. Mm. Like I, I grew up, I got the first punkorama compilation back in the nineties in high school from Epitaph. And it like blew my mind. And then I bought all those records, no effects, bad religion, gas huffer, like all those bands. But plus I was into Metallica and Iron Maiden and Slayer and Anthrax. And for me, it's very normal. Cause I just look at music as aggressive. I'm pissed off at the world music. Mm. What I hear when I listen to like ride the lightning, I hear punk rock in ride the lightning. And when I listen to an early no effects record, there's metal riffs on that record. Yeah. And I mean, all the fat record stuff back in the day, the thing that they had in common, like strung out propagandi there, they were Hesher guys. They were metal dudes. So like, I don't know. I, I don't draw a line in the sand when it comes to that. And when you say that the, my bands run the gamut, it's because that's the shit I'm into, man. Like I was never in a gangster rap group, but I love that growing up too, you know? there's a direct line that can go from like punk like the sex pistols and the ramones straight through to like public enemy yeah wa like those, those are the same kind of they're the same people just coming from slightly different areas of uh of the tracks you know well and from my experience growing up i always thought it was cool because kind of being this punk kid growing up i felt like i had more in in common with some of the guys that listened to like hip-hop because they were kind of anti-establishment and they were kind of fuck authority. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and I would rather like, oh, you're you're into that stuff. Well, that's kind of what I'm into. It just sounds different. Yeah, exactly. It's the same aggression. It's the same kind of 
the same message that they're putting out there. So yeah. was your house a musical house growing up? You know, did your parents or brothers and sisters or anything like that, did they, they play instruments and... My dad was a very talented musician. He played saxophone in the school band mm. and he was a drum major and got a full ride, full ride scholarship to college, like for band, like not it's, it's a different vibe. Cause my dad was very like taught and like studied. Like I remember my first band chronic chaos when I was in high school, we were more of kind of like a ska punk band. Cause that was when like, you know, real big fish and less than Jake, and all these bands were huge. So we were punk or like, we'll try to do the, tink, 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 try to do the little ska thing. And we were recording at this guy's house, like in his basement when I was like 16. And I wanted my dad to play a saxophone solo on one of the songs. Cause I thought, you know, we don't have anybody that knows horns. My dad knows horns. And I said, okay, dad, it's in G major. Just make something up. He goes, I can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean? You can't do it. Just it's in G major. And he goes, I don't know how to do that. You'll have to write it out. So I had to like write a little solo on the guitar and then write it out the music. And then he played it and it was fine. But that wasn't a big influence on me because he was always, you know, he played saxophone. That was all he played, but he was a big music guy. Hmm. There was a record store close to where we lived called Karma Records. And when you would walk in there, they'd be playing a song and they'd have the little now playing thing. So maybe... You know, if there was a, a metal guy that was the clerk, he'd be playing Sepultura or something. And and my dad would always walk in there. And if he liked the song, he'd buy the thing that was playing. Right. So my dad got me the Punkarama compilation. I didn't know anything about it. I'd listen to the Ramones because of Metallica. I'd listen to the Misfits because of Metallica. Mm. My dad said he walked in there and there was a Pennywise song playing. So he bought the compilation for like five bucks or whatever. And he let me hear it. And that changed my life. But my dad would go in there. I remember he bought, what did he buy? He bought like, uh, there's this, this band called nail bomb, this crazy, like death metal -y kind of band. Mm. And, uh, he went in there and bought it cause he loved it when they were playing it. And one of the guys in that band is this guy named Alex Newport. He's a big producer out in LA. I think he's British actually. I think that's originally he's from England or the UK somewhere. And when I was in a band called Brazil, he produced their record and we went and stayed with him when we were in California. And I had him call my dad because my dad loved nail bomb so much. And he <laughs> talked to my dad for like an hour on the phone about this project he did 20 years prior that no one even had ever heard of, but my dad, this 60 year old dude or whatever is like, I love nail bomb. And I don't know. So my dad had a huge influence on me just cause he always, and he gave me all his old records, his black Sabbath, his Zeppelin, his Hendrix. He played saxophone, but he was a massive music fan. So I think a lot of it came from him. Well, it's cool that he wasn't a snob though. That's the thing. Like, I don't think he even understood snobbery. He mm. would hear some, and I think that's rubbed off on me. Like I was saying earlier, like he heard something. It didn't matter if it was, he wasn't the, the, the demographic that was supposed to like it. If he liked it, he would buy it and he'd share it with me. Like his CD collection was insane. He'd have like drops of Jupiter by train right next to rain and blood by Slayer. <laughs> like he was just a really cool guy and he, he loved music and it didn't matter what it was. That's a great foundation to start from. Yeah. I, I've said it before on here and uh, like my parents had awful taste in music. It was top, <laughs> it was like top 40 or nothing. And um, yeah, I kind of had to find my own way. And I, I think that's uh, it's, it's easier to have someone there. I was also the older sibling. So yeah. like, 
I was. You're supposed to help the other people. You're supposed to tell your younger siblings what's cool. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was finding my own way. So I had to rely on my friends to find that kind of thing. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So did you did you start on, you know, more classical instruments like brass instruments, or was it always guitar for you? Well, the first instrument I ever played, I started when I was about five or six, uh, was the violin. Mm. And I did not enjoy it. Um, but I mean, I was also five or six, so what am I going to enjoy? About the violin's not something I'm going to enjoy. Yeah. But my parents are like, if you do really well, you can try something different. And at that point, I was getting into rock and roll. I mean, it was a lot of the the staples, like because my dad listened to Sabbath and everything, but I was really enjoying rock and roll music. And I said, well, if I do really well, can I, can I change the guitar? Mm. And they're like, yeah. So I, I worked and practiced, even though I hated it. And I was playing Bach and Beethoven and stuff like that. And I did fairly well for a couple of years. And then my dad bought me an acoustic guitar. And the first thing I learned on the acoustic guitar was the intro to one by Metallica. <laughs> I couldn't play it very well. <laughs> but I was really stoked. And I took some lessons and the guy was kind of lame. And I ended up just buying a bunch of tab books, which is what you did back in the day before the internet. And I just kind of taught myself and guitar has been the one staple. Like it's been with me ever since, you know, eight, nine years old, whenever I actually started and got, got my first guitar. Hmm. But I mean, since then I, 
I play piano, I play mandolin, I play ukulele, banjo, bass, everything. I, I own a, an education studio where I'm a private tutor for music. Right. And I pretty much, I mean, I teach drums. I, I do songwriting, song like production for like, you know, using Logic or Pro Tools. Like oh, cool. I teach everything, man. And that's kind of, I've made music, even though I'm not touring full time, it's, it's my life and it's how I make my, my money. Oh, cool. That must be great to kind of, I always think teaching is such a special thing to kind of see someone go from a beginner to an intermediate to someone yeah. who's then, you know, able to go off and you've had a part to play in that. That must be great. I actually have a couple kids that I started teaching 15 years ago that they're twin boys. They both sing and one plays drums and one plays guitar. They have a band called Ponce and like, they've actually got a record deal and like they're starting to tour and, and it is, it's kind of cool because I met them when they didn't know anything mm. and it's not because of me, I mm. helped them on their journey. It's they put the work in, they did it, but it is cool to see that. And I, I've always done these things called rock and roll summer camps where we put kids together and we have bands. It's like a nonprofit and to see those kids on the first day, not really know what they're doing. And then by the end of camp, we have this concert for their parents and they're playing Aussie songs or they're playing Judas Priest songs. It's, it's really cool, man. And I, I don't know. It's uh, if I can't be out there creating and like doing my own thing, I want to help people be able to do that for themselves. You know, that's really cool. So who would, who would you say you'd like your influences were kind of on, on your guitar playing journey from obviously you were playing down, you were sitting down playing along to Metallica on your acoustic, but um, you know, were that, were they the guy, they, the guys just in particular, not just them, but James, Hetfield. James. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, and I know that people talk about it all the time, how he's like the fastest down picker and all this stuff, but they have such a huge influence on me as a guitarist, as a songwriter, everything like the way that I learned how to write riffs, the way that they, when I was young and I wasn't that studied at guitar, I don't know if you play guitar very much or what, but I'm a bass player. Okay. I'm starting to play mandolin with okay. the possibility of going to guitar, perhaps. I don't know. Like, but bass has been my thing because I figured that you only have to play one string, one note at a time. That <laughs> yeah. was my uh that was my re reasoning for that. <laughs> well, when you start when you start playing guitar and you first learn how to do a power chord. Yeah. That's like the Ramones, Green Day, like power chords. Punk <laughs> bands use them all the time. It opens up this whole new world for you. And Metallica uses those, but the Metallic would do like these thirds like major thirds and minor thirds and they'd move it around and they do all these weird intervals and i at the time didn't know what they were called or why they worked mm -hmm. but they had more more of a melody to it a different voicing than just playing like a power chord and so learning that early on from playing those metallica songs that kind of informed how i wrote things and how i did things and that's in a lot of the music that i'm writing now and that i've written since but it James Hetfield, just the way that, you know, you would do three times through the riff and then a tail that was different. Like I still, to this day, when I'm writing a riff, I'm like, I repeat something three times and then I'll do a tail, like a, like a period at the end of a sentence, like the vernacular and everything that they use when they talk on their documentaries about writing songs, I have adopted for my own use. And other than James though, like Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, the the way that they were so dark and, and the, like they're singing. I'm not a good singer. I do backups and whatever, but I wouldn't sing an entire song. 
they didn't do the normal harmony like they would do like a weird seventh or a fourth instead of like the normal third or fifth you know and that haunting quality of that band and then how he would his guitar playing was so precise and cool but it was in this bluesy almost kind of loose way but it fit perfect those are the two guys that kind of informed my guitar playing mm. and then of course when i got into the punk rock stuff chris hannah from propagandi you, you can't you can't go wrong with that that guy's yeah, a shredder yeah. man he was like all of my favorite guitar players and the punk stuff in one person <laughs> yeah propagandi kind of cover that that ground because they're quite thrashy anyway they cover all the ground like you were talking about the pop yeah. to the metal to whatever you listen to propagandi that's me because it's got metal it's poppy sometimes there's some like more ballady slower stuff like that band hands down is one of my favorite bands of all time and i've been listening to them for most of my life and i i don't think they've ever put out anything i don't like mm. no they're an amazing band so what's the first band you went to see live metallica right of course <laughs> <laughs> i'm seeing a pattern <laughs> well no and that's the thing it was uh it was after justice came out i think it was 88 or 89 uh they were playing in this place called fort wayne indiana which is about an hour from where i grew up mm. and uh the cult opened up for them only one nice. opener it was that damaged justice tour i don't know if you know about it but like they had the big doris statue that's on the cover of justice and it like fell over and the whole stage collapsed and <laughs> wow and it blew me away man it was like the coolest thing i'd ever seen in my life my dad took me to that he right. told my mom we were going to see bon jovi he lied to her <laughs> and <laughs> i remember that to this day my mom still gets mad He's like your dad said bon jovi i was like i hear them on the radio they're fine no we went to metallica <laughs> i was like 10 years old and we went to see metallica but that informed so much from going to that show because I've since I've seen Metallica 28 times in my life. Mm. And the second time I went to see them was on the black album tour with my dad and they were playing Mesa boogie, triple rectifiers, which are the amps with like the diamond cut face. Yeah. And my dad's like, what's that amp? And I told him all about it. And then like a month or two later, my dad bought me a Mesa boogie, triple rectifier. Wow. I mean, he got it on time. Like he had to pay it off or whatever. Like, but my dad was like, if they have it and they're the pinnacle, my son has to at least have the right equipment. Wow. So my dad was very, very supportive my entire career. Yeah. I mean, on my mom and dad's anniversary one year, when I was 17, we got an, my old band chronic chaos got an offer to play in Vermont, which is literally 17 hours from where I live. But it was like, a sold out festival. And so my dad's like, I've never been to Vermont. And he borrowed my grandma's van and we all went to Vermont for three days and we played the show. It was on their anniversary. Then we came back home. <laughs> I mean, wow. he would do, he would do anything as long as he's like, you know, I, I don't know if you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, but if you want to do this music thing, I'm going to help you out. So that's so cool to have such a, a supportive parent like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, also teaching you a little bit of uh nonconformity and, uh, yeah, like it's Bon Jovi, Metallica. You know, <laughs> he was like, "Well, to... if I told your mom, because my mom had preconceived <laughs> notions of what Metallica was, sure." So he's like, "Well, if I tell it, because Bon Jovi was playing like that same night in Southern Indiana." So he was right. like, "Oh, we're going to Bon Jovi," and like, "No, we're going to Metallica." <laughs> That's awesome. And um, you you mentioned about joining the Ataris. Um, yeah. How how did that opportunity come about? 
That's a funny story. So we were talking about the Widow Jenkins, which is my like kind of metal tinged band I was in. We got the opportunity to go up to Chicago and play for a very well-known record label in their warehouse. <laughs> and basically, if they dug us live in their warehouse with their staff, they were going to put out our record. Hmm. And like I said before, my singer, he he loved writing songs, loved being in the band. He wasn't he didn't love performing live. It was becoming too real for him, I think. I'm not sure if he really wanted the lifestyle of touring and and the pressure of going to play for this record label. It's kind of like a showcase. Mm. And so he kind of quit a couple of days before we were heading up there. And so I got a hold of the label. I was like, hey, you know, we we kind of don't have a singer now. I'm like, oh, well, if you get another singer, let us know. We're still interested. So I was on the journey to try to find someone to sing that was as good and as my last singer and fit with everything we were doing at that time i had heard that chris rowe was back in indiana because he had been living in california and different areas in arizona and whatever and the ataris had kind of been inactive for a while he was doing acoustic shows but the band was kind of inactive and i heard that he moved back to indiana he lived a town over from me mm. so i got a hold of him and i was like hey man i'm gonna send you a song tell me if you like it I know the Ataris aren't doing much right now. Maybe you'd sing on it. We have this label that wants to put out the record. It'd be a fun thing to do. We could be in a band together. Hmm. And so he said, man, I really like the song. I don't really know if I want to go down that route, but I am trying to put the Ataris together. Do you want to be in the Ataris? <laughs> and I was like, sure. He goes, well, here's the problem. I'd still need a bass player and a drummer. I'm like, well, <laughs> I've got your problem fixed because my <laughs> band doesn't have a singer and we're not doing anything. And I've got a really good drummer and a really good bass player. So Chris came over the next day to my studio. I used to own a studio out on the north side of the town I live in. Hmm. And we jammed on a bunch of Atari songs. We jammed on funny Metallica songs because Chris is a huge Metallica fan too. Right. We bonded over that. And it went really, really well. And at the end of it, it's kind of like that thing that everybody says in documentaries. Like, so you guys want the gig? <laughs> and we're like, yeah. And then two weeks later, we were in Vegas playing a sold out show at the Rio in front of like 5,000 people. Wow. So it was really kind of a whirlwind thing. And and like then Chris, we did all the demos for the new record, which has been leaking out. It's he still hasn't really put out a record since then. That was kind of mm. an issue. But we did all the demos at my studio and uh it was cool. We just started touring right away. We went to Europe and South Africa and all over the place, all over the United States. And it was really, really cool. And I love that band and there's no bad blood at all. I just after a few years I kind of wanted to do my own thing you know yeah because you you spent like maybe almost three years or so in there right three or four give or take yeah and that that must have been quite an incredible thing to go from because how what kind of level of uh venues were the widow jenkins playing in for example the widow jenkins were playing tiny clubs and like american legion halls like like the shows were big but it was no barricade it was pretty diy yeah but i'd also i'd also been in a band called brazil that was on mm. fearless records and we were doing you know we did bigger tours with like coheed and different stuff coheed oh, before, right. they were, before they were coheed now <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah like like clubs and theaters and stuff and i was also played in a band called undermined for a while that was on kung fu so i had done the the touring that maybe wasn't as bare bones hmm. but in the ataris it was like catering hotel rooms it was different <laughs> that must be nice <laughs> it wasn't like i'm gonna go buy a mansion but it was like oh i, I can go on tour i know i'm gonna shower and eat food 
And when I come home, I can pay my bills. Like it was all I ever wanted. I didn't care if I was ever rich. I just wanted to pay my bills with my guitar. And that's, that's what it got to. And it, it was great, man. Just after a while though, it was just, I had other opportunities to like work in corporate entertainment and just do things. And I was kind of, I felt like we were spinning our wheels Mm. and plus I was playing the majority of someone else's stuff. And I kind of, I'd always been a songwriter and always wanted to do my own thing. Even if I failed, I still wanted to do it. And that's why I say like, no bad blood. I love Chris Rowe. The time I spent in that band, I'll cherish forever. And it opened up a lot of doors for me, but it just, after a few years, it kind of, I kind of got burnt out to be honest with you. Yeah, I can understand that doing. I mean, I, I've only been on like one tour. I got picked up by a band a couple of years ago and then COVID happened and we couldn't do the tours. And then it all happened last year. And um, yeah, sharing a van and in most cases, bedrooms with, with uh, you know, a bunch of other guys. It's not the uh, it's not the glamorous lifestyle that you envisage. Uh, when you're not actually in it, <laughs> now, even even when there's a little bit more like luxuries when you're on tour, like just more stuff you want, it's still not as hyped up as what people think it is. Yeah, yeah. and it is it's a slog as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, right, we've got to get up early in the morning and drive to the next place and do the same thing again, and then you're waiting around after sound check. Well, I mean, and, you basically yeah. you don't get paid to play the hour you're on stage you get paid for the 23 hours you're not on stage trying yeah. to figure out what the hell you're going to do how you're going to get there how you're going to be in manhattan and try to find a parking place for a bus like <laughs> it's not easy you know yeah so what was the corporate entertainment stuff that you went on to do after that then uh there's this place down in uh southern united states it's people don't really know if you're not from here but alabama has a very small coastline right next to florida okay and uh there's a there's a town called Gulf Shores, Alabama, because it's right on the, the Gulf of Mexico. And there's a place called the Hangout Restaurant Venue, whatever. It's for tourists and and bands play there. But they also have the Hangout Music Festival, which they've done like Stevie Wonder and Tom Petty and the Chili Peppers and the Foo Fighters and all that stuff. And I got to work in their artist relations team. And then I also got to be the, the head talent booker for the venue year round. And then I also worked the festival. I moved down there. It was just it's contracts and a hundred emails a day. And it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I, I'd always kind of liked the business side of the music business too. Mm. And I got a lot of contacts and a lot of really good experience in corporate entertainment thing as well. Yeah. Well, I suppose actually having a head for the business side of the music industry places you above quite a lot of the other musicians in the music industry anyway, because a lot of people don't have that don't have a head for both the creative and the business side of things. So I've always kind of been the left and right brain guy because like I'll write a song and I feel like an artist, you know, when I'm like doing my stuff that I'm creating, but you also have to market it and you mm -hmm. also have to do your own booking. A lot of the times, like I, I kind of feel bad sometimes when people are so incredibly talented, but they don't understand that there's a whole other aspect to it. If you're not doing those other aspects, you might be able to find a team to do it for you, but that's hard to do. Like I've always kind of been like, okay, I'm in this band. We're, we're pretty good. I'm going to be basically our manager, our booking agent, our label, and I'm going to figure it all out because no one's going to do it for you unless you can do it for yourself. That's how mm -hmm. I feel anyway. I think that that's um, it's a, it's an interesting and, and probably the, the best way to go about doing it. If you're not at 
say Metallica's level, you know, you've got to yeah. try and keep as much of it in house as possible because that stuff also gets expensive. If you've it got teams total, running yeah. social media, you've got teams running marketing, you know, it all adds up at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, in the Atari's like we had a business manager, we had a regular manager, we had a booking agent. Like I'm not saying that that wasn't great and they did a wonderful job, but the thing with fire sale, like, we haven't signed with a booking agent yet because we're all dudes in our mid forties that don't know how often we're going to play shows, but we have a lot of offers for that right now. And I think we're going to do it because we need, I could book a bunch of shows for us. Like I just booked our release show when we were down in Texas, which we might talk about later, mm. but to get on tours and be kind of considered for different spots and festivals, you kind of need to work with somebody that handles that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't mind that, but social media i can do that shit like you know back in the day any band i was in it's just like i'm not gonna hire somebody to do something i can do in five minutes you know mm. and it's that whole thing of fake it till you make it like my first band my high school band we got two weeks on the warp tour because i emailed kevin lyman every day for four months <laughs> he said he said if you stop emailing me you can have two weeks <laughs> so persistence really is the key right yeah. And he wasn't mad. And like, he met us the first day and like had breakfast with us. Like Kevin's a great guy. I had met funny thing. It's all like connected because I'm in a band now with Matt Riddle, who mm. was in face to face and no use for a name. Matt's one of my favorite bass players in the world. I'm still kind of freaked out. I'm in a band with him, <laughs> but back in the day, I think it was maybe the 2002 warp tour. I was on warp tour with another band kind of like tour managing and working on guitars and stuff. And I met Rory from no use. And then Rory introduced me to Kevin Lyman. And then I got Kevin Lyman's information and gave him a CD of my band. And then I started the email campaign. And finally, Kevin's like, Chris, you can have some dates. Just stop emailing. me." <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing. I, I wasn't trying to be a bother, but if you want your band to get anywhere, you got to put in some work that isn't just, oh, I just wrote a song. Like you've, you've got to do more. You've got to kind of be your own PR guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. A hundred percent. Let's talk about fire sale then. Okay. So when the, when the corporate stuff was kind of, was, did, did that come after then? Was it a COVID project that has well, taken off or, or what? Fire sale was kind of a COVID thing. Like that, that corporate entertainment job, I ended up after Alabama, I met my wife, we got married we had my son. Then we moved to Jamaica for a while, actually, oh, wow. because I got okay. I got another consultant gig for a venue in Jamaica and they needed someone to fix their entertainment team. And so we were down there for a few months. Then we moved back to Alabama. Then we ended up moving to Indiana, which is where my family's from. Mm. And it's nice and cheap here and there's no traffic. It's awesome. <laughs> but uh, so basically, you know, we did that and I started teaching full time. I opened up my own, you know, private tutor thing for music and then the pandemic happened and I wasn't working. I was trying to do some zoom lessons, but it's really hard to do lessons over the internet, like virtual imagine. lessons. It's nice to be in person and be able to show the person what they need to do. And so for eight or nine months, it was just kind of like, wake up, hang out with my family. And then when everybody went to sleep, play guitar. And I hadn't written any songs for probably 10 years at that point. Right. And I wrote a couple songs and I, I thought they were pretty cool. And I normally don't really dig my own stuff. Like I, I like it, but I'm like, it could be better, but I liked these. They felt different. And I sent them to Matt Riddle and he loved them. And 
he sent me back some bass tracks and I'm like, Oh, Matt sent me bass tracks. I was hoping kind of subconsciously that he would play on the songs just because he's one of my favorite bass players. And then we were kind of searching for somebody to sing. And I'd worked with Pedro previously on a couple projects and I, I really liked his voice and how he wrote lyrics and everything. And, and he was down. And then at the time, my buddy, Tim from protest, the hero, he was playing piano and, and some second guitar stuff. Now he's kind of really busy with protests, so he's not really doing much with fire sale. And at that time, I needed someone to do some demo drums. And my buddy Tucker from Thursday and Ellis Dunes, he played the demo drums. And but I knew he wasn't going to be in fire sale because he's super busy. He was just kind of like, it's the pandemic. Send me the tunes. I'll play drums on them. And so once it started kind of kicking off, then we're like, oh, this needs to be a thing. Like, yeah, it's the pandemic. But then I kept writing songs and then Matt was sending me songs and then Pedro was sending me songs and it felt more than just like a project. And then we, you know, we got the attention of spam records over in Austria and they put out the first seven inch. And from there we were going to do a full link with them, but they had signed a lot of bands and they were super busy. And I, I kind of just wanted to, I love that label. They're great people. They kind of got us started and we might work with them again in the future, but I wanted to have a label that was based closer to us, like maybe in the States mm. and a label that maybe didn't have as many bands that could, you know, put a little bit more emphasis on what we were trying to accomplish. And I, I got contacted by uh, negative progression, which is a label that was pretty big here in the States back in like the late nineties, early two thousands. It had gone away for a while and then they were relaunching and they wanted to put out, a record for us and that's kind of where we're at now man and things have been we, we have a new video coming out next week we've been getting all kinds of crazy like satellite radio play like it's weird to be 44 years old and away from it for so long and now i'm in a band and things are happening and people are liking it if you would have asked me a couple years ago i'd have said you're crazy it feels like there's something in the air since the pandemic yeah i mean even in my own smaller kind of more local bands that i play with like my very first band got back together in 2021 to kind of play some covers root over some of our old songs see if there was anything in them and then we started playing our old songs and we're like oh yeah this is cool and by the way i've been writing this and then you know the 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 drummer was like well i've written this yeah in the meantime and then we started playing some more stuff and we're like oh actually no this is this is what we prefer playing our own stuff than covers, you know, but even this year, like we've been doing many, much more gigs this year and there's much more money in the local scene. Now people seem to be valuing music a lot more than they were. Whereas previously we, we came back as a covers band to try and make a little bit of money on the side. Yeah. But actually what we're finding is there's more of an appetite for that out there. And um, it, it feels like, the pandemic took music away from music fans, especially live music. Yeah. And yeah. it feels like after a year or two of no one quite knowing what was going on, everything feels like it's back to normal, but people are more kind of passionate about it than they were before. Almost. I don't know whether that is something you felt as well. I've, I've felt that. And I will say that, you know, I've always been kind of like a vinyl guy. Mm. And so I've got a decent vinyl collection. I mean, you know, growing up in punk rock, hardcore, vinyl, hardcore bands always put out seven inches. You know what I mean? Like you just go to a hardcore show and they didn't have CDs. They had a seven inch. Yeah. And at the time I didn't even have a record player, but I would buy whatever I want. You know what I mean? Because you want to take that souvenir home with you. So 
I've always collected vinyl and I will say, I know vinyl was resurging before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, I think it, it went crazy. Well, to the point where there wasn't enough vinyl in the world to keep up with production, was there? Well, no. And I'll tell you that we were doing a seven inch, that first seven inch that we did, the time that it went into production to the time it shipped was a year. Wow. And now this one that we just did that just came out on the new label, it's not as crazy as that, but it was still four or five months. I mean, like it's still not where it used to be, but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I think people are valuing maybe a physical thing to take home with them or to buy from the bands that they like also. Yeah. Cause you know, I, I come from a time where when you were in a band, if you weren't on a label, you went to a company and you ordered a thousand CDs. And if you toured enough, you sold them. Yeah. And now I don't know anybody that's put out a thousand CDs, even if they're a big band, like it's either vinyl and limited quantities or it's just your streaming stuff. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that our song drops at midnight and everyone in the entire world can go listen to our song, but it's also nice to have a physical tactile thing that you can hold in your hand with artwork. And, and that's why we really, we wanted it to look really good. Like we, our new seven inch, we just put out, it's called a fool's errand. We had Mark, De, Mark DeSalvo did the artwork. He hand painted it. He's done no effects, lag wagon, you name it. He's done it. And Mark has become a really good buddy from the podcast. He was on my podcast and we got to talking and I'm like, Hey man, you know, we're going to lean into this thing that we're in fire sale and we're all in our forties and we know what our market is and our market are guys from like 35 to 50 that care about who does the art and cares about who mixes and masters that we had it done at the blasting room by, you know, Bill and Jason, like at first we kind of like people are saying super group and we didn't like that, but then we're like, screw this. We're going to lean into it because we want more people to check out our band. So we're like, people are going to say we're old dudes putting out punk music anyway. So let's have Mark do it. Let's have the blasting room do it. Let's let them call us a super group. Like I don't care. <laughs> We've embraced all of that and leaned into it. And I'm glad we have, cause I think it's helped out. Well, it's marketing as well, isn't it? You know, well, and that goes back to me having the weird left, right brain thing. Cause I'm like, a lot of the guys in the band are like, oh, Mark's really good, but man, he's done all the old 90s punk stuff. I'm like, yeah, what are we? <laughs> Who's going to listen to our shit? Who's going to buy our shit? It's people that love what Mark has done and what he's worked on. And I mean, I think we do have a little bit of a modern, there's a modern production and like maybe a little modern vibe on the songs, but there's nostalgia there too. Mm, there mm. definitely is nostalgia in there. you know. Yeah, I mean... For example, I mean, on a fool's errand, you've also got like a, I don't know whether they're called a B-side anymore in the streaming world, but um, We Dance for Sorrow sounds like it could have come off, like parts of it sound like it could have come off an AFI record from the early 2000s. Yeah. There's, there's there's elements of like the bass line in a fool's errand sounding like something from like 90s, maybe descendant style kind of like there's there's a lot of stuff yeah uh, floating around in there and obviously that comes from the pedigree that you guys all have been in various successful bands in the past and i think there's a real kind of melting pot in there i've been listening to the songs like over and over for the last few days just to kind of get them in my head 
and um yeah really really enjoying it man thanks man how was going to the blasting room because i've had a couple of guys on who've recorded at the blasting room i've also had the guy who's done the documentary recently um i think it's about to come out and do the festival circuit at the moment yeah it seems like a very special place well i will say that we didn't actually go there okay right (laughs) (laughs) we actually we we all you know we're older guys we all have our own little studios we feel pretty confident in producing stuff ourselves so a lot of it was recorded remotely like i would write a song or matt would write a song and then we would just do our parts in our own home studios and then when everything was completely done and we felt good about it we sent all the tracks to the blasting room because i mean it, it costs a lot of money for everybody to fly to colorado and when, when you just get stuff mixed and mastered, like we trust Bill and Jason and they would send us stuff back. We'd give them a couple little notes. They'd send it back done. Like they know how it's supposed to sound. They know what we want. Yeah. And we, like I said, we're pretty confident in our recording engineering skills and like, you know, Matt recorded his bass and I recorded my guitars and, and Peter recorded his vocals. Matt Morris recorded his drums at his studio and, we just kind of smash it all together and then we let Jason and Bill do their magic. So that's great. Cause that, again, that, that comes back to what I've been doing with my first band. We've decided to do it all ourselves Yeah, because the pandemic taught us to do stuff like this, for example, yeah. uh, me and my buddy, um, the guitarist, we were doing a podcast for years and years beforehand. So we have all the equipment that we need to record vocals and guitars and stuff anyway and we thought well let's see if we can do it i mean as long as you record to a click as long as it's like gridded out it doesn't matter because like matt riddle has the same setup i've got yeah so i'll record all my guitars with fake drums or just to a click send it to him he records his bass just sends me the bass wave back yeah and then i have it in my session it's just like he was in my house you know like we just we want this band to be stress-free and that just made more sense because we don't live close to to each other right now that was what i was going to ask are you all over the us we we are we the funny thing is we say fire sale from los angeles but matt riddle lives close to la i live in indiana which is the middle of the country pedro is on the east coast he's in virginia (laughs) and then matt morris our drummer is in dallas texas so (laughs) like we get together and like it's a band but we all kind of live in different areas so not only was it the cheapest most cost effective way to record but it was also logistically it's kind of the only way we can unless we spend a bunch of money and went somewhere yeah and and us we're always constantly writing and recording and then our labels like the plan is to put out a bunch of seven inches then eventually put together like a full length with new songs and the songs we already put out on the singles okay yeah so the thing is like you know they're like okay we need two more songs we're gonna send to the blasting room so pick them and we've got like this 28 song playlist of demos on soundcloud and we go through let's do this one and this one together they they'll fit and then we get with mark and we talk about ideas for art and it's just like kind of like what they used to do back in the day they'd put out a single and then another single and then another single and then later on the full length we're gonna try to do that just because we're we're still growing the band. We want people, if we put out a full length tomorrow, there's a lot of people that would like it and probably buy it, but I think it'd be dead in the water pretty quick. Whereas if we just keep leaking out these two songs, people keep liking it and wanting the no- another one and wanting another one. And then finally the record comes out because we're not touring very much. Like we're playing mm. shows, we're doing stuff, but 
we can't do it full time. So we, once again, the marketing, we have to think about what's smart and what's a way to grow the band. So there's constantly things happening, constantly things coming out. Yeah, I mean, this is the other change, I suppose, in the music industry in the last, it almost feels like in the last five years, but probably in the in the last 10 years, is that if you're not releasing something every month or every, you know, yeah. every few weeks, you're almost forgotten about, you know, and so the argument is, is it worth, you know, putting out a full length album or is it worth just carrying on with seven inches? But the other thing that I've been trying to put forward to my guys is like, let's release a song every month or two. Then at the end of the year, we've got like an album's worth of songs that we can just put together as a compilation, add another couple of songs to. It just seems to be the easiest way is to feed the beast, unfortunately. Well, and that's the thing, like the label we're on is not a massive label. I mean, I don't know if there are any massive independent labels anymore. Mm. So like they support us and there's some budget there for things we want to do, but we're going to have to pay all that back out of royalties or, or whatever. So if it's like we do two songs at a time, that's palatable. That's, that's not going to break anybody's wallet. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And it's going to keep, you know, say we put out a couple songs and they do a seven inch and nobody buys it. <laughs> that happens all the time. Like a couple of people might buy it, but it might not be a success. I like keeping it kind of small, keeping the people that like our band kind of hungry for the next thing. And nobody goes in the poorhouse doing that, you know? Mm. So tell me a little bit about the logistics of playing live then in that case. Cause obviously, like you say, it was a kind of remote thing where you're all recording your own bits from completely different ends of the country yeah you mentioned the texas show how do you make that come together well we always when we do stuff we want to make it very lucrative right because we don't want to waste any time when we're together because we're not together that often so for the texas thing we got the opportunity to do a video we got the opportunity to uh play that show our, our record release show at a really nice place in texas and people came out it was great but we we wanted to make sure like so we set up like a photo shoot we set up everything people are like why are you going to texas like well our drummer lives there so we have a base of operations there's a rehearsal studio on his property like we're gonna we make smart decisions that work for the band so we went to texas we got there on a thursday we rehearsed all thursday all friday woke up and had an 8 a.m video shoot for like eight hours on saturday went saturday night and played the show Sunday, we had a photo shoot. Monday, we flew home. <laughs> wow. We, like with no, I think the only time we relaxed is we went to dinner one night. And and then it's, that's kind of, I mean, we're not into wasting anybody's money. And you know, the label was was flying us there. And we just want it to work for the band. So anything in the future, like we're talking uh, right now, we're probably going to have like a little, maybe a week on the West Coast, maybe a week on the East Coast coming up. And it's got to make sense. You know, it's it's we're not going to have many days off because when you have a day off, you're spending money Mm. and we all have mortgages and kids and wives and jobs and businesses. (laughs) I mean, my drummer, Matt Morris, he owns his own dog training and boarding place. Like Jeff, one of the, the roadie guys for the descendants, every time he goes on tour with the descendants, he brings his dog to Matt's and Matt watches his dog at his boarding kennel. Like, it's just, we're all in kind of different areas, you know, like Pedro has a studio and he runs it full time recording bands. I do my private music tutoring and I also mix and master for bands and do podcast editing and all that. 
and it's just we all have our own thing going on and we can't let this band affect our livelihood we want it to be fun and productive and lucrative so when we go do things like texas it's a whirlwind because you get there and then you don't really go to sleep till you're on the plane coming home it sounds like a, a clever way to be doing things if i'm honest with you you like it, it sounds like it works and also if you've got that mentality from touring days as well you know how to maximize your time and and what that yeah. what that's going to involve you know the the lack of rest and sleep and things like that i'm not under the impression that we're going to be some massive band ever we don't play the style of music that ever gets massive anymore mm -hmm. and we're all older you know like there's people I went to high school with that are grandparents. Yeah, right. That freaks me out, you know? <laughs> so um, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, so I started later in life. But the thing is, you know, I can't tour full-time. I don't want to tour full-time. I don't want to sleep in the van. I don't want to eat ramen noodles every day because I don't have any money. I like my bed. I like air conditioning. I like taking showers every day. So the thing is, it's like those bands that go out there, like when I was in my twenties and I'm just hitting it as hard as I can, cause I want my band to make it. I'm past that. And I know that's probably not going to happen. Plus in the music industry, who makes it anymore anyway? Mm -hmm. So I think we're just a little bit smarter maybe about it because we know, we know the limit of where the band can get to. Like if we sell a song to some commercial or whatever, hell yeah, man, I'll take all that money. But that doesn't mean anybody's going to come see my band, you know? So I think we're just smarter about it. And we don't, like I said, stress-free. Our band's like a family. If if we get we got offered a couple weeks in Europe last summer, and I was all excited and I wanted to do it, and a couple of the other guys wanted to do it, one of the guys wasn't able to because of prior commitments, and so that was over. And nobody's mad. It's just it has to be everybody or nobody. Yeah, so. that makes sense. At the end of the day, like you say, there are there are other priorities that need to take priority over this, isn't it? You know, it's uh, well, just the we, way we've we've all world. had we've all had like bad experiences and good experiences in bands, and like you know, we've since day one we split everything exactly down the middle. Everybody gets an equal portion of royalties and everything, and we just don't want this band to ever become anything that's not positive in our life. So that's great. And uh, something I can totally relate to as well. The the other thing that I wanted to ask as well, was there ever a discussion about what type of music you were going to make, bearing in mind the number and the kind of the number of bands you've all played in before and the different styles and stuff? I mean, not really, because like the only thing, the only time that's ever really come up, like when I sent those initial songs, it was like Dark Hearts, which is one of our songs and the song called Mercy Brown, which is like about this vampire thing. I don't know. But uh those songs were kind of in the realm of punky, maybe a little metal influence, but more punky. Mm. And then that's just kind of what I write. Like there's some other songs that are coming out later this year that are a little faster, maybe more skate punk esque, you know? And then there's a couple songs that I wrote that I don't know if they're ever going to come out that everybody's played on. There's no lyrics yet because Pedro has to finish it, but there's like two ballads one song sounds very reminiscent of like an Allison Chains, like Seattle kind of nineties thing. Okay. And one, one kind of sounds almost has like elements of queen. Wow. Like, I know that's a big thing to say, but just some of the guitars and I've got some harmonies and some of the chord like structures, 
reminds me of like something a little more epic, a little more mm. like Queen would do. And I don't know if those will ever come out. And there's been a couple songs that I've written that we've kind of all agreed is like, mm, I don't know, really know if that's a fire sale song, but you know, like Matt Riddle, I, one night I said, Hey man, when you get home tonight, write me a Matt Riddle signature bass like song. Like you can just do an intro or a full song or whatever. And he sent me a full Zarin. <laughs> and I'm like, this is the next song, man. And I sat there for like two <laughs> days and just, I did all the guitars and like, I sent it back to him and, and people have said like, you know, when I hear that, I know it's him and it reminds me of old face to face. And I'm like, that's because it's in our DNA. Like the things that we did in the other bands, it's all there. So there's never really a big discussion about what are we going to sound like? What are we going to do? Because I mean, if you listen to dark hearts, Mercy Brown, A Fool's Aaron, and We Dance for Sorrow, you can kind of tell it's the same band, but those songs all kind of have different vibes. Yeah, I was going there's a there's a definite, there's almost like a not a progression, but there's certainly different they, they the first couple of songs sound similar-ish because they were released in the same year. Yeah. And then Fool's Errand and and We Dance for Sorrow sound very much different again from those first two. Is there any consideration to like I say, with the releases being more seven inch, seven inch, seven inch, then maybe an album. Is there any consideration in the songwriting process to structure the songs that they get put on playlists or, you know, for the algorithm, which says you should start with the chorus within three seconds or whatever? <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of that. Like I subscribe to, I've always kind of used the whole Tom Petty method of songwriting, which is, you know, intro, verse, pre chorus, chorus verse pre-chorus chorus bridge double chorus like yeah. the the thing that people do like pop structure whatever right but the only thing that we ever really kind of talk about is and it's mostly pedro because he's he's our editor like i'll send him a song and it's like six minutes long right and he's like he's and then he writes his lyrics and everything and in the melodies and he's like well you know the first pre-chorus can go double the second pre-chorus we should cut it in half you know, only do the chorus twice at the end. The bridge doesn't need to be a full eight bars. It can be six bars. Like he does that. And so like, he'll take what Riddle and I put together and he'll make it more like, okay, now it's three and a half to four minutes. It's not six minutes. Cause I don't have words in my head when I'm writing riffs and I'm writing songs. So the only time we ever talk about that is like, it might be a little bit long. We don't want people to get bored. Is there a reason that I played that part three times instead of two times? And it's not to like fit into any box. It's just that trimming the fat, man. Like when you, like, I know I'll go back to my old sturdy Metallica that I always talk about when you listen to Metallica and they have an eight minute song, it's not boring. No. But when you listen to the eight minute songs on St. Anger, they're really boring <laughs> because they just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. So for us, it's a song doesn't have to be three and a half minutes long, but it kind of just gets to that or around there when you trim the fat that isn't any new information that you're introducing to the song. It does nothing for the song. It's just me where I'm writing. And I'm like, I've got an intro. I've got a verse. I've got a pre-chorus. And I lay it out the way I think it should be. But then when the vocals get on it, there's stuff that isn't needed that I've repeated. It's already somewhere else in the song a couple of times. I don't need to do it here. Hmm. So that's the only thing that really happens. And that's just a collaboration between everybody in the band kind of, and even on like, you know, Matt Morris will send us the drums and he'll be like, 
I don't know. You think I should do a, a different fill here? And we're like, no, that feels really good, but maybe do a fill here or do this accent where there's a pushed kick. Like it's stuff like that. We're always analyzing everything and trying to make it the best that we can produce, but we don't really, we don't really worry about fitting in anywhere like that. Again, I, I suppose it comes back to the type of music we play, right? It's uh, yeah. it's not that kind of pure pop that needs to be fitting into that kind of algorithmic song yeah. structuring. I don't think the algorithm is going to help us at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you crack the code on the algorithm, please let oh, me know how it if, works. If only, if only. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what what's coming up next then? Because obviously the last single, Fool's Errand, that came out in November last yeah. year, right? So yeah. when can we expect new music? Like you say, you're, you're planning small tours east and west coast like what what's what's the plan for t- the rest of 2023 the rest of 2023 there's quite a lot happening i don't know when this is coming out but you can always go back and check it out uh june 9th our video drops we're really excited about that and then let me see this tomorrow which is june 2nd but this might be out later i'm guest djing on uh faction punk on sirius xm for a week Okay. And I'm playing all the fire sale stuff and then bands that we love. And we're really, really excited about that. Fat Mike did it last week. Oh, wow. So it's really cool to like, oh, Fat Mike and then fire sale. It's really strange. <laughs> so that's coming up. If, if, and plus, if you, you know, you're listening to this in the future, you can always go back because it's on the app. You can check it out and replay it. But um, other than that, I just last night finished editing the guitars and the bass for one of the new singles i have another single i need to work on the drums are complete uh pedro has like a three second little thing of vocals he has to do before the vocals are done (laughs) and uh we're just basically getting those all ready to send to the blasting room so they can work on them and we're hoping those will come out in the fall Mm -hmm. and they'll be on another seven inch we're working with mark again with on the artwork i can tell you that a fool's errand had a bird on the cover. Yep. And this, this, yeah, this new one, we're sticking with that theme. It's another bird, but it's a different bird. Okay. And it has something to do with one of the song titles, which is the lead single. I can't tell what it is right now because it might change, but, uh, but yeah, so we, we have some new music coming out. We are looking at different offers for some gigs and, I think we'll probably play some more before the end of the year, at least on the West coast, hopefully the East coast too. There's been some festival interest, but that probably won't happen until next year. And uh, we also have some offers for Asia, but that's probably going to be 2024 as well. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. And that's, that's about it. We're just uh, always writing and just chugging along, trying to have fun and put music out, you know? Oh, excellent, man. And, um, as well, your own podcast uh, is is coming back as well after a little bit of time away, that one time on tour. Yeah, I took a hiatus. And if you haven't ever checked any of it out, man, I've got almost 200 episodes, some awesome, awesome guests on there. Yeah, it's not one that I was familiar with, but I will go back and check it out because uh, I always like to do that. I just like listening to musicians talk. Yeah. Uh, recently, I had Zach Blair of Rise Against on at the beginning I've of the had year. Z- I've had Zach on my show too. And he's a... Uh, He's a font of knowledge about guitar. I don't know how deep he went into guitar chat, but he he will talk guitar for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Zach, Zach's a good guy. Like I, the guys yeah. in Rise Against, um, Joe used to be in a band called 88 Fingers Louie. Mm-hmm. And Dan 
Vaklinski, who was the guitarist originally in Rise Against and 88 Fingers Louie, he recorded my first band's like two records and we'd go up to Chicago and record with him. I have an 88 Fingers Louie tattoo and Joe has let me into Rise Against shows before for free because I have an 88 tattoo. So <laughs> Those guys are idea. awesome. I, I love those guys, man. I'm going to start getting band logos tattooed on me yeah. and see if that will get me into gigs from here on out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just stupid. I have so many. I can't even tell anymore what I have. Just to, they call my dude when I lived in Jamaica. That's the funny thing. I was telling you that earlier. Mm. It's a very conservative country. Everybody would look at me walking down the street when I was going to my my work or whatever, and they called me coloring book because I'm <laughs> I've covered in tattoos, and I always thought that was hilarious. Like a hey, coloring book, and people I didn't even know would just yell it at me. So, oh man, um, just towards the end, what are you listening to at the moment? Are there any kind of you know? new acts that you know about but maybe you want to you know shine a light on or you know what are you listening to well i mean it's not that self-serving but there's a lot of stuff on uh the label we're on that i love mm. uh, which normally isn't the case with every label i've worked with <laughs> but uh there's a there's a really good band called gone stereo that uh is on npr with us grayed out they're really really good they're from the west coast and uh, there's a band that they just signed, Time Spent Driving. One of the guys used to be in Fury 66, which is like an awesome West Coast punk band from back in the day. But Time Spent Driving is kind of more this kind of indie, emo-y kind of, I, I don't know, it's really, really good. I love the way it sounds. But other than that, there's a really good band out of Illinois that I really like called Black Cat Manor. They're, they're, they're starting to get a little bit of steam. They're, they've... They're kind of medley, kind of 90s punk mixed with like a metal band, kind of like what I like, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I love the new Alexis on Fire record. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're a fan of theirs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, came yeah. out, it came out a few months back, but yeah. that otherness record is just stellar, man. It's It's so good. Yeah, it's off the chain. Some of the songs on there are ludicrous. I but... mean, look, I've got, I've got an Alexis tattoo right there. <laughs> do you get into shows for free with that (laughs) uh they don't come around here very often uh it was funny like i i got that as kind of a goof and i i sent it to some of the guys and they thought it was pretty funny so yeah (laughs) i love those guys we we did back in the day with the ataris and stuff we did warp tour with them and Mm. and then dallas's solo stuff city in color that new record's amazing too like Mm. and i know they don't need my promotion but i am listening to that and the new Metallica is great. They don't need my promotion, but I'm listening to that. But yeah, Black Cat Manor out of Illinois, really, really good band. And then the stuff on on Negative Progression, which I left one out to uh, Last Second Save. Really good kind of piano, indie, almost like a something corporate Andrew McMahon kind of thing. Okay. Really good. Cool. I'll have to yeah. check some of these out for sure. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an amazing chat and Thanks. finding out a little bit about you. That's what I love about doing podcasts, right? It's a, it's a long form medium and yeah. uh, you get to delve into some things where, you know, magazine and broadcast journalism, there isn't quite the time to open that up for. So I really appreciate the fact that you've been with me for like an hour or so now. Yeah, man, this has been great. And we've been doing a lot of press lately and this was a pleasure because it's it's nice and early in the morning for me it's later for you because you're overseas and mm-hmm. i don't know i really enjoyed our chat and i'd like to come back anytime maybe i can have you on my show when i get things kicked back off too hey man absolutely yeah without a doubt cool. we can we can trade some sleeping in van stories 
I got a lot of them. Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet, I'm sure man, you well, do too. <laughs> I've got a few. We'll uh, we'll talk about it in just a sec. But also, where can we find Fire Sale as well on online? It's all um, Fire Sale is a band, right? Yeah, it's at Fire Sale is a band for all the socials. We have a website, firesaleisaband.com. It hasn't been updated for a while. It does have the links to everything if you want to go there. Uh, negativeprogressionrecords.com is where you can get all of our stuff. If you're in the UK or anywhere that's not America, we have distros everywhere. So the shipping isn't bad. So if you just go to our Instagram, there's a link and you can hit up whatever market you're in. If you want to buy the new seven inch or whatever, that's probably your best plan. Cause I, we had some people, the distros came out like staggered. So it was like the US orders and then UK and then Europe and then this. And so like a lot of people from like Australia ordered it from the United States and the shipping was like four times the amount of the record. But now we've got it spread out. So if you're in the UK or Asia or wherever, just go to fire at fire still is a band on IG and go to our link in our bio and it's got all the different distros. So if you want to pick it up which is important buy merch from the bands buy merch, but also <laughs> buy merch from a distributor in your market. So you don't pay crazy shipping. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to press stop. Don't go anywhere just yet. Cool. There you go. What a great chat that was. Chris was so full of stories and is also a wealth of knowledge about all sorts of music, especially metal. We carried on talking for a bit afterwards as well about the Ataris and the music business in general, which is always a good sign that we got on really well, and I always love that. Once again, you can follow Fire Sale on Facebook and Instagram at Fire Sale is a Band. You can also follow Negative Progression Records at Negative Progression on Instagram and Facebook or find them on Bandcamp, Negative Progression Records. I've really enjoyed getting back on the horse again after a few months off, and I'm working really hard to bring you more great conversations, as well as a new documentary episode, which will be coming soon, I swear. Let me know what you thought of this episode on social media. Tell your friends who are into music that I'm back in the saddle and providing these episodes again, and share this episode far and wide on social media. Also, go and leave a five-star rating and especially a review on Apple Podcasts. But till next time, more than anything else, take good care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.